A New Supply of Our Girls by Dio Lewis, just received by Robert H. Davis. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Well, hi there, and welcome to episode 32. Today I'm fortified with a glass of Yunnan sourcing black gold black tea. No, really, that's not me reading an ad. I'm actually fortified by this delicious glass of Yunnan sourcing black gold black tea. It's one of my favorites. Probably my favorite just in terms of value per unit price. Before I was recording the show, I had a thought What makes me more comfortable than tea? So why shouldn't I be sipping on a cup of tea while I do the podcast? I'm sure that my slurping and gulping and and my, my savoring won't ever make it through to the microphone. And the factor of comfort will make me into a dynamic, engaging, and infinitely listenable podcaster. I can dream, can't I? So that advertisement threw me for a loop, and uh, I sat there and I thought, I said to myself, a new supply of our girls, a new supply of our girls. Given all of the articles about prostitution in Syracuse I've been reading recently, I facetiously thought to myself, boy, they're being open about that, but obviously that was a, a joke I told to myself. And I read it again and again, a new supply of our girls, and finally I just Googled it, and I found a book on Amazon entitled Our Girls, and I said, punctuation! Punctuation, people! There's no quotes or anything surrounding the words our girls, so it just reads as a new supply of our girls. Our Girls is a book by Diocletian Lewis. This is from Wikipedia. Diocletian Lewis, March 3rd, 1823 to May 21st, 1886, commonly known as Dr. Dio Lewis, was a prominent temperance leader and physical culture advocate who practiced homeopathy and was the inventor of the beanbag. Wow, that's a resume. Relevant to the material I've been following, there's several enticing aspects to that resume. First, temperance. I'm going to get into that more uh, as we go. Physical culture. Now, I'm fascinated with the preoccupation with physical culture during the latter 19th and early 
20th centuries, as you can see by my second episode on, Will, sorry, my first episode on William Hope Hodgson. He was super into uh, physical culture, but also because of an aspect, a, a thread that I've followed as I've read Syracuse newspapers in particular, because there was a large German population in Syracuse right from the start. And the German immigrants were very, very preoccupied with physical culture. They had something called the Turners or the Turnverein. I'm probably mispronouncing that. It's T-U-R-N-V-E-R-E-I-N. It was a culture of physical prowess and gymnastics. And a lot of the gymnasiums in Syracuse were built or rented by the Germans to practice their Turnverine routines. And there were German festivals, and the Turners were one of the primary spectacles in those, uh, in those festivals. Homeopathy? Boo! Not going to deal with that. Except insofar as I will be reading ads for homeopathy quacks in future episodes. So, continuing on with the Wikipedia entry in the temperance crusading section. In the 1870s, Lewis and his mother began leading groups of followers into saloons to pray for their closure. He later lectured in churches, claiming miraculous results from conducting such visitation bands. Lewis's actions and lectures inspired others to similar action, thus initiating the women's crusade against alcohol. Lewis gave a public address in Hillsboro, Ohio, on his fall tour through Ohio called Our Girls that advocated physical exercise and an active life for women. On Sundays, he spoke on the duty of Christian women in the cause of temperance. In these lectures, he instructed women to ask local dispensers of alcoholic beverages to sign pledges that they would cease to sell. Upon refusal, the women should begin prayer and song services in these establishments. He urged women to be the sole participants in these acts in order to aggrandize the emotional force of the movement. So they were like a combination physical trolling force and a flash mob. Fantastic. Women took the, to the snowy streets, and within three months of their first march, they had driven the liquor business out of 250 towns. By the time the marches ended, over 912 communities in 31 states and territories had experienced the Crusades. It was and still is still the largest mass movement of women to date. Francis Willard, the second national president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, wrote later in her memoirs that the crusade was like the fires we used to kindle on the western prairies. A match and a wisp of grass were all that was needed, and behold, the spectacle of a prairie on fire, sweeping across the landscape, swift as a thousand untrained steeds, and no more to be captured than a hurricane. Lewis claimed that, as a result of them, more than 17,000 drinking establishments were abandoned in Ohio alone in a period of two months. Most of the saloons that closed as a result of prayer vigils opened again a few days later to meet the public demand for alcoholic beverages. Why am I so pleased to have found this ad that at first baffled me, but then turned out to be be about 
a famous book on temperance being sold in Syracuse. A couple of reasons. Number one, temperance is all up in that news lately. There's temperance speakers on speaking engagements. In Syracuse, there's temperance uh, articles in newspapers all over the country. It's a big time for reform, and temperance is at the heart of that. And I'm always fascinated to hear local spins on temperance, local manifestations of the overall temperance movement, because up until the time I got into studying 19th century newspapers, look, I'm a dummy. I'm not speaking for anybody else. I don't know if you ever had this same misconception, but I thought of the word temperance as roughly synonymous with not drinking. And that is a critically flawed limitation of understanding the breadth and nuance of what temperance meant. Uh, a better way to say temperance in a few more words is moderation in all things. These women in the temperance movement, of course, uh, not drinking was the most publicly uh, visible aspect of it, and it was certainly the most important aspect. But temperance meant abstaining from extremes of behavior when it came to sex, gambling, public displays of anything, uh, politics. It was, it was a movement that spoke to a, a valuing of moderation. And it reminds me a lot of the way uh, David Hackett Fisher spoke about George Washington's heritage of Stoicism. I think that's another good synonym for temperance. Uh, stoicism, restraint. The other reason that I was happy that this crossed my path was that it ties in with something that I've noticed recently. We're talking 1871 here, 150 years ago today. And one thing I've been noticing about the recent newspapers is that people such as Reverend Samuel J. May, who was a really big name in the abolition movement and the Underground Railroad in Syracuse, are on their speaking tours, but of course they're not talking about abolition now because abolition is a thing of the past. They're talking about temperance. Now, if you don't have a deep understanding of the social, religious, economic, and political axes of the time, that might not make immediate sense. But first of all, these speakers had to make bank. They funded themselves on the money that they got from passing the hat around at these public venues when they went from town to town. They would stay a few days and then move on to the next town. So today we think of these people as moralizers and as cultural driving forces, but they were also very much people who had to make a paycheck from their speaking engagements. They were social media mavens. They were the, the social media uh, spearheads of their time, and they were not about to just languish in their public speaking just because emancipation had happened, 
the Civil War had ended. So a lot of these people were turning to temperance because there was such an ideological intersection between temperance and the tutting at the excesses that temperance uh, represented. And there were certain ideological uh, nuances that I'm not going to get into right now that intersected with the free trade ideology that the free trade ideology underlay both religion and politics in the 19th century. And free trade had a certain flavor of a man being responsible for their own actions and nobody else's. And that sense of restraint, I think, I mean, this is just me spitballing here, trying to give you a, a flavor for that age. And hence, it's susceptible to my own, uh, to my own foibles. Take it for what it's worth. But I think it, it, after being immersed in these newspapers for six years, it makes a lot of sense to me that there was such a synergy between religious notions about uh, temperance and religious notions about free trade and slavery. So it just makes sense to me that people such as Samuel J. May, uh, Reverend uh, Logwin of Syracuse, would transition and retool their public speaking skills into focusing on temperance, because that was the, the hot ticket item at the time. Moving on to the Syracuse Daily Journal local news section. Again, everything I'm going to read today, with the exception of some supporting materials for the springboard items, are from a single page of the Syracuse Daily Journal, page 4, 150 years ago today, April 3rd, 1871. I want to focus on two items under City Notes. If you look at the show notes, just look at the image and follow the column down to the fifth item. Several members of the Common Council visited Seneca Falls on Friday to witness the workings of the Silsby steam fire engines. Mmm, yummy tea. Now, skip down to the seventh item. The police are again after the boys for jumping on the cars. Two were sent to the penitentiary this morning, as all others arrested for a like offense will be. Wow. So why am I reading those two articles? Find out after the break. Clover, Timothy, and all kinds of seed for sale. Wanted. 500 bushels clover seed will pay the highest price. Corner James and Warren Streets, north side of Canal, B.C. Lathrop. And we're back. Moving on to the next article by way of explaining why I focused on an article about 
a fire engine. Again, same page. Destructive conflagration in Salina. The alarm of fire sounded from Box 5, corner of North Salina and Wolf Streets. On Saturday night, about 11 o'clock, was occasioned by the burning of the several farm buildings on the farm in the town of Salina known as the Haskins Farm. The farm is the property of Miss B.M. Reed, who recently rented it to Mr. John Reed, who lived on the farm. Miss Reed boarding with the family. When Mr. Reed first discovered the fire, it was in one of the barns and spreading rapidly. An alarm was given, and though the neighbors rallied promptly and made strenuous efforts to stay the spread of the flames, so great was the heat that it was impossible to get near the burning buildings. So rapid was the spread of the flames that soon three barns, a long shed, shed shop, corn house, ice house, and several smaller buildings were all one mass of flames. The neighbors were powerless to stay the conflagration, and but for the fortunate shifting of the wind, the dwelling house must have been burned also. All the farm buildings were entirely destroyed, together with their contents, excepting one lumber wagon which was re rescued when on fire. In the barns and other buildings were no less than 86 head of livestock, consisting of 57 cows, 24 head of young cattle, and 5 horses. Not a single animal of the above was got out, all being burned to death in the connected buildings. In addition to the livestock, there was in the barns was about 50 tons of hay, $500 worth of oats and barley, and upwards of $1,000 worth of wagons, harness, and farming implements, all of which were totally destroyed. Of the destroyed property, Miss Reed owned the buildings, the young cattle, three horses, and all the rest, with the exception of two horses and the 57 cows, which were the property of John Reed. The total loss by the fire will reach about $12,000, of which Miss Reed loses about $8,000 in buildings, stock, etc., and Mr. Reed about $4,000 in stock. Miss Reed has an insurance of $3,000 on the barns, but none on the stock. We failed to learn as to whether Mr. Reed is insured or not. The origin of the fire is the work of an incendiary, and it is not improbable, but that an investigation may take place. I want you to notice a couple of things about that article, but first, a word from our sponsor. Vegetine. Can we expect to enjoy good health when bad or corrupt humors circulate with the blood, causing pain and disease, and these humors, being deposited through the entire body, produce pimples, eruptions, ulcers, indigestion, costiveness, headache, neuralgia, rheumatism, and numerous other complaints? Remove the cause by taking Vegetine, the most reliable remedy for cleansing and purifying the blood. And we're back. Go back to that article. 
Read the bit at the end that every cell in your brain wants to just skip over. The boring crap about total losses broken down by type, and then how much is covered by insurance. Not only are these fires so common that I rarely bother to mention them, every one of these articles includes such a trailing summary of the financial damage and how much of that financial damage is covered by insurance. This is so important to my historical studies that it's hard for me to overstate. Again, I'm a dummy. I don't want to speak for anybody but myself, but it seems to me that in our modern era, we have come to take for granted the extent of our fire prevention and suppression infrastructure to the point where it's virtually impossible for us to get our heads around the extent to which that infrastructure has grown and made it possible for us not to think about it. It's difficult for me to get my head around just how ubiquitous the threat and the presence of fire was during the 19th century and a ways into the 20th. For more on this, I want to direct you to the show notes, and there's a list of links to my blog posts. One of the reasons that that little article that I read a few minutes ago about the common council members visiting the Silsby Fire Engine Company was that that's a connection to my family history. A man named George Bachman, who was either the first or second husband, depending on how you interpret the salacious, scandalous newspaper articles about her secret marriage, in his younger years, he worked for the Silsby Hose Company, or he was a, a volunteer firefighter for them. It's not really clear. But anyway, go to this blog post and read the bit about George and the Silsby Fire Company. Uh, there's an article from the Syracuse Weekly Press from 1889 about a fireman's benefit. And most of all, I just want you to see the stuff about the condition of firefighting at this time and how important a development in something as uh, seemingly to us, mundane, was to someone in a Syracuse uh, Common Council in 1871. This was a big, big deal. Because remember, in that article, remember how they mentioned nobody could get to the flames? Why is that? Well, because they didn't have the technology to pump water far enough and to spray water far enough to reach the flames at that time. So, we've got a bit about the Silsby Manufacturing Company. There are some neat illustrations of their old-timey fire engines and hose and pumping equipment. Uh, this fire pump will discharge 750 gallons of water per minute, 
and will force it in four or less streams as required to a distance of over 175 feet from one and a quarter inch nozzles. It will draft water 25 feet perpendicular suction, etc., etc. Silsby Manufacturing Company, Seneca Falls. So this company was the creme de la creme of fire uh, engine manufacturing at that time. There's another blog post about the evolution of fire prevention and response. That's the most important one that I want to direct your attention to because this one summarizes my findings about this subject, especially as fires related to the infrastructure and the fire insurance industry. There's an article, uh, I've got a, an excerpt here from Money and Fire, the story of the men and women who fight fire and those that insure against it, a thesis by John Netherland. And if you think that sounds unbelievably boring, trust me on this one. Give it a try. From a historical interpretation perspective, it's about a hundred times more interesting than you might think. Mmm, Yunnan. Knowledge advanced the insurance business to its next level. Knowledge proved more value, most valuable when companies came together in boards and association. Before the 1870s and the forming of the National Board of Fire Underwriters, fire insurance had been highly, hugely primitive. There were many companies that had established rating schedules and tried to identify higher risk. However, the vast majority of smaller companies set rates on guesses and their greed. These companies would fall to the conflagrations. The industry needed to spread the science behind insurance. By the time the NBFU came, around agents were known to by the time the NBFU came around, agents were known to talk and communicate with one another. Where one might have learned a hard lesson, they could then go and tell another agent what to do in a situation. A prime example lay in a conversation between a young agent and an old one, as told by Brearley. The young agent saw a tall row of buildings made of stone and thought that since they were made of stone, they were a good building to insure. However, the older agent saw the mansard roof responsible for burning Boston and helped the younger agent to change his mind. It is these conversations that began to change insurance into a true science instead of a semi-scientific art punctuated by gambling. So as I say in this blog post, the fire departments of today didn't just happen. They are the end product of a 150-year negotiation between citizens, property owners, insurers, architects, politicians, engineers, and firefighters, and that negotiation informed much more of our landscape than I imagined. From regulations limiting building materials, wiring, height, and spacing to municipal water supplies, fire shaped our culture. For more background, I recommend reading the thesis above along with the FireRescue1.com article, Six Pioneers of Fire Behavior Research. Again, I know it sounds ridiculously boring, but I found it much more illuminating than I ever would have imagined it before I read it.
So remember that date. The National Board of Fire Underwriters got started in the 1870s. We're talking 1871 here. So this is at a time when insurance companies were just pure Wild West. I mean, it was a, it was a crapshoot as to whether people would actually get their money because there was little to no regulation about who could start an insurance company and whether or not their business model was ever going to do anything. So when you read articles like that about what's insured uh, versus what the value of what got destroyed, you're looking at a culture that is obsessed with fire and its destructive capacity and also with the infrastructure that is lacking and the infrastructure that they're just, just scrabbling to develop to cope with this. You're looking at a primary cultural preoccupation hidden in plain sight in these boring tabulations at the ends of articles about fires. We'll continue after this word from our sponsor. Entertaining and instructive, Professor P.B. Wooster of New York will give an exhibition with the Stereopantoscope at the 4th Presbyterian Church, Tuesday evening, April 14, 1871. Views will be given of places and objects of interest in the Holy Land. Also, a trip across the continent from Halifax to San Francisco. Doors open at 7 o'clock. Admission, 25 cents. Children, 16 cents. The net proceeds of this entertainment will be given to the 8th Ward Mission Sunday School. And we're back. Are you curious? Because I was really curious as to what the hell a stereo pantoscope was. And I was not even a little bit surprised to find that from what I've been able to dig up, this uh, Professor Wooster was the coiner and only user of that term. This is from the New York Times, January 6th, 1868, page 2. The Stereopantoscope at the Church of the Holy Trinity, Reverend Stephen H. Ting, Jr., corner Madison Avenue and 42nd Street. This evening, there will be an exhibition of stereoscopic views, magnified by a camera 5,000 times and illuminated with the hydro-oxygen light. The New York Herald, Tuesday, March 9th, 1869. The lecture season. Cooper Union, free lectures. A lecture on Union Pacific Railroad with numerous views taken by A.J. Russell, Esquire, and illustrated by Professor Wooster's Stereopantoscope, will be given in the Great Hall on Tuesday evening, March 9th at 8 p.m., admission free. Abram S. Hewitt, Secretary. Now here's one that gets into the most detail I was able to find about what this Stereopantoscope was and how it was used. The Middlebury Register, Middlebury, Vermont, August 8, 1871. Stereopantoscope, 
Professor B.P. Wooster gave an exhibition of his 100 photographs of natural scenery, works of art, old ruins, cities, etc. at Union Hall on Monday and Tuesday evenings of last week. The pictures are projected upon a curtain, enlarged 5,000 times and illuminated by oxyhydrogen light. The views are of rare beauty, and their exhibition is accompanied by historical allusions and descriptions by the professor. We were especially entertained by the views of the Rock of Gibraltar, rising some 1,500 feet above the level of the sea, clothed with historic interest. The Acropolis of Athens, the Pride of Greece, the mountainous Isle of Patmos, where John, in a cave, saw the far-reaching vision recorded in Revelation. Ephesus, sublime in her desolation. Baalbek, a wondrous relic of that race which piled Pelion on Ossa. Damascus, perhaps the oldest city in the world, founded by a grandson of Noah. Palestine, with the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth, Bethany, Bethlehem. Hebron, the Dead Sea, the Jordan, Jerusalem, each and all covered with undying interest. Egypt, with her temples, tombs, the Nile, her sphinxes, colossi, and eternal pyramids. Switzerland, with her lakes, valleys, glaciers, and Alps in indescribable and unchanging sublimity. There were... All told, I think less than 10 articles that I was able to find about the stereopantoscope, and every single one of them was about a lecture given by this Professor Wooster. His gig seems to have been doing small uh, lectures on the traveling speaker circuit, uh, mostly if not all, at little churches. Oh, wait, one of them was at the Cooper Union, but I believe the rest were at churches. Now, let's get to the meat of this. I'm going to skip over again on that same page of the April 3rd, 1871 Syracuse Daily Journal court record, and I'm going to tie this in to that other item from the local news. Now, I'm going to read this whole thing, and then I'll get into the weeds. I want you to let this entire list of court proceedings wash over you, because I know I've spoken about this a lot, but this is a typical day. This is like Tuesday. This endless cascade of drunk and disorderly charges, it really gives you a flavor for Syracuse, in 1871. Police Court before Justice Corbett, Monday, April 3rd, 1871. John Dwyer of Fabius was found staggering about the streets Saturday afternoon with April Fool chalked on his back. He pled guilty to public intoxication and on taking the pledge for one year, he was discharged. John McCarthy got drunk on Saturday, and some person struck him, he appearing in court with a black eye. It being his first offense, sentence was suspended. Edward Dunn, a fast 
youth of 16 years, put in his first appearance for drunkenness, he having been arrested at a saloon near this city hall. He was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 30 days. Nelson Lower, who paid $10 for being drunk on Saturday, was arraigned again this morning and pled guilty to public intoxication. He was discharged on taking the pledge for one year with the understanding that if he was found drunk within the year, he would be sent to the penitentiary for six months. Notes Steyer was arrested on Saturday evening on Williams Street, he being drunk and very abusive to passers-by. He admitted his guilt and was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 60 days. Samuel Morton, from Schoharie County, en route from Rochester, was found wandering about the streets Saturday night very drunk. It being his first offense and promising to leave town, he was allowed to do so. Hey, that was a dangling participle. Bad newspaper writer. Jack Jackson and Thomas Barry, boys, were arraigned, charged with jumping on and off the cars while in motion. Both pled guilty and each was sentenced to the penitentiary for ten days. Committed. Michael Lynch was arrested on Mulberry Street on Saturday night, he being drunk. He pled guilty and was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 30 days. Frank Haley of Clay was arrested at one of the churches on Saturday night, he being drunk and disturbing the services. He was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 30 days. Michael Fitzpatrick, alias Fitzgerald, was arraigned, charged on oath of Augusta Fink with an assault and battery on the 19th of March. He pled not guilty and demanded an examination. The complainant, who keeps a grocery store on Water Street, alleged that the defendant entered her premises and demanded beer, which she refused to give to him without he paid for it in advance, as he had frequently fooled her out of his beer before. She further alleged that he threatened to shoot her, and that he struck her in the face and kicked her. He was held for trial. Patrick Ryan of Geddes was brought up for being drunk, he having been picked up in the street. He was discharged, it being his first offense. Felix McKinney and Philip Johnson were arraigned, charged with public intoxication. They broke open the barn of Messrs. Howland and Perry yesterday and, taking a horse, drove off. The owners of the property refused to prosecute the defendants, and they were sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 30 days. The examination of Edgar Gardner for an alleged assault and battery, which was set down for this morning, was further postponed until Thursday morning. John Boyle, John Blakely, Charles Borlson, and Andrew Schetzmeyer of New York, Peter Strogan of Barrytown, and James Farrell of Oswego were accommodated with lodgings at the station house last night couple of things about this. 
Note that last bit about the elegant use of the sort of dry and sarcastic phrasing were accommodated with lodgings at the station house. This seems to be sort of a uh, tiered system of justice from what I've been able to gather from my many, many, many readings of these long lists of drunken disorderly charges. I think the first tier was just being given a warning and being let go. Second tier was being quote-unquote accommodated with lodgings. I see this literally every day. So-and-so was accommodated with lodgings. Sometimes they don't even bother saying at the station house. Like People just knew what that meant. Uh, second tier, uh, well, I guess there's four tiers, really. The third tier is you give someone, you make someone swear an oath that they won't do it within X number of days, uh, it being uh, drinking, I guess, or if they're going to drink, uh, being drunk and disorderly. I don't know exactly where they drew the line, but oaths were involved. And the fourth tier being okay, you're going to the penitentiary if you don't pay a fine, that sort of thing. Now, moving back up to the main thing that made me want to do this uh, podcast episode, the boys jumping on and off the streetcars. Remember that episode 28? from just a week or two ago, the relative valuation of little girls and bears. This is a grisly, tragic reminder of the consequences of playing chicken with a streetcar in Syracuse at that time. Just a year previously, this little girl had been just tragically violently killed when she ran out across the tracks at the precisely wrong moment, was knocked down by the whiffle tree trailing the horses, fell under the wheels, killed instantly. That was a year previous to this, and then just prior to this, there was a huge surge of national coverage of the trial in the Onondaga County Circuit Court, where the father of that little girl was awarded only $200 as a result of her death. It got the national coverage because three days later, the owner of two bear cubs that were killed by negligent treatment on another train system was awarded $900. And that that photo, uh, that article is still running now in various newspapers across the country. Dozens and dozens of newspapers from coast to coast are joking about how in Syracuse you get $200 for the death of a child, but $900 for a couple of bear cubs. The optics of this are really embarrassing and really prominent. And here we've got where the heck is it? Drunkenness, drunkenness, uh, drunk. 
Ah, here we go. Jack Jackson and Thomas Berry, boys, were arraigned, charged with jumping on and off the cars while in motion. Both pled guilty, and each was sentenced to the penitentiary for ten days. Committed. So that, combined with the mention in the local items that this is how we're going to treat any boys who do this in the future, anyone who does this in the future, tells me that there have been deliberations in the powers that be about all these, op- all the, the optics of the situation and how they've got national attention for this, uh, this problem of violent deaths as a result of the ho- horse-drawn streetcars. They want to put a stop to that. So they're stepping up their punishment. And uh, it was a bit shocking to see that these boys were being sent to the penitentiary. Now, I don't know anything about the Onondaga County Penitentiary at that time. Uh, I just did a very short amount of Googling prior to this episode, and I found some some information about how it had been going through multiple expansion projects in the two or three years prior to this newspaper. So, for all I know, they had a special section set up for for boys, but for all I know, they could have been in Gen Pop. I, I don't know. It seemed it seemed harsh, uh, not knowing the the setup of that penitentiary, but apparently they were stepping up their harshness for this. Now, here's what I wanted to point out within the the context of historiography and the the focus of this podcast. It's easy to dismiss those boys as just 19th century ruffians and, you know, boys will be boys, that sort of thing. Initially, I had a bit of a, wow, I can't believe they they would do that in the face of the senseless mayhem of the 19th century. I mean, here we've got all these fires that I've already mentioned in this episode. We've got people being dismembered and crushed and set on fire horribly. It was, it was Wild West in every sense of the word, except with uh, the gun violence. I mean, it was just, from my modern perspective, such a chaotic, dangerous environment, just being alive at that time, with all the the burgeoning industry and all of the fallout from the the speed of that development and the the lack of safety measures, it was just dangerous to be alive. So why would these boys do this, given the obviousness of the danger? And then I sort of checked myself and said, well, boys have never yielded to obvious notions of their own mortality. They think they're immortal. But there's a deeper way to look at this. If you stop and consider my primary reaction to so much of the material I've read over the last six years, you get a little bit of a different viewpoint. And that is, social media is not new. All media has always been social. All of the aspects of social media that we think of as modern were solidly in place by 1850. It was driven by 
eyeballs on advertisements and all sorts of polarization, uh, political, social, religious, geographical. That was all to the good. That drove eyeballs to advertisements. In short, is it possible that those boys were doing it for the gram? Their cultural, social, and, and media milieus Oh, God, I mispronounced that one. I should not use words like that. Strike that. Their cultural landscapes equivalent of Instagram. In other words, were they reacting to the preponderance of national coverage of these violent deaths in Syracuse? Were they aware of that when they started playing this game of hopping on and off the trains? I don't know. It's worth considering. And now a word from our sponsor. Vegetine. Reports from home. Boston, 1870. To H.R. Stevens, proprietor of Vegetine. The Great Blood Purifier. We, the undersigned, residents of Boston, having taken Vegetine ourselves or used it in our families, also know of many others taking it and receiving great benefit. It gives us great pleasure to testify to the merits of this valuable medicine, and we cordially recommend it to everyone suffering from complaints for which it is recommended, knowing it to be the best preparation yet offered to the public for diseases arising from impurities in the blood. Names and Residences James Cook, South Boston, Expressman J.H. Sears, 778 Broadway, South Boston Mrs. D.H. Sears, Broadway, South Boston Mrs. S.J.W. Gilman, 408 Broadway, South Boston Frank M. Taylor, corner of Dor Dorster and Athens Streets Henry Mason, 422 Broadway L.D. Cardell, 461 Broadway Monroe Parker, 387 Athens Street Dexter Smith, editor of Folio, Boston. Mrs. A.G. Cardell, 135 Dorster Street. Mrs. M.J. Tompkins, 133 Dorster Street. Wyman Osborne, 416 Third Street, South Boston. Edwin Tilden, 49 Sears Building. N.H. Tilden, 40 Sears Building. Frank P. Kilburn. 285 East Street, James Morse, 364 Athens Street, Charles H. Byler, 265 Broadway, South Boston, D. Howard, Jr., Merchants Exchange, Boston, William J. Walsh, Merchants Exchange, Boston, James M. Learned, 31 Congress Street, Boston, James H. Wallach, 31 Congress Street, Miss A. Noland, 31 Congress Street, Boston. G.W. Bradley, 3 Davis Street, Boston. O.H.P. Hodge, 558 Broadway, South Boston. C.H. Tucker, 29 Tyler Street, Boston. W.H. Whiting, 14 Linden Street, Boston. James Coleman, 362 Athens Street, Boston. J.T. Beers, 3 
Harrison Street, Harrison Avenue, Boston. Mrs. J.T. Beers, Harrison Avenue, Boston. Ira A. Worth, 81 Congress Street, Boston. Hugh here. So that introduces you to an element of advertising at that time that was already extremely important, the testimonial. Now, as I said, it was already important, but it's nothing compared to how important it will become in about 50 years. That's for a future episode. For now, I've had my fingers crossed for the last 10 minutes because I remembered a point I wanted to make that I forgot to make earlier, and that is about Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth has been on one of those speaking engagements that I mentioned, similar to what Samuel J. May was doing, but Sojourner Truth was on a a speaking engagement in Syracuse that ended just a day or two previous to the printing of this page. She had spoken at a couple of different venues around town, and the sad thing about the stories that were printed about her speaking engagements was that they gave no detail. They gave a perfunctory honoring of her appearance, but they gave no details on what she said, and the overall impression was one of tiredness. They were just uh, worn out and, and sort of bored with her. As a matter of fact, one of the small articles said the speech she gave last night was not well attended. So I got the distinct impression that Syracuse was kind of bored with Sojourner Truth's stories about slavery. And I can think of no better expression of the tragedy of Reconstruction than that. 1871, halfway through Reconstruction, Syracuse, the node on the Underground Railroad that was so important to New York State and the rest of the country, was bored with Sojourner Truth. And that ties into what I was saying about people such as Samuel J. May and Reverend Logwin having to retool their public speaking chops and redirect them towards the cause du jour, which in large part was temperance. I think I actually mentioned everything I wanted to mention this time. Go me. I hope you found it interesting. Let me know if the tea slurping and smacking and swallowing turned you off or if you were enchanted with my enjoyment of the lovely imports from Yunnan. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. 
A daring young man on the flying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stolen away